This week's episode is brought to you by Chalkbeat Tennessee. Chalkbeat is a nonprofit news organization committed to covering one of America's most important stories, the effort to improve schools for all children, especially those who have historically lacked access to a quality education. Chalkbeat is mission-driven in that it believes that every child deserves an excellent education and that a strong press is vital to making that happen. They are also fiercely independent in that they don't take a position on the best path for achieving equity. To find more about Chalkbeat, especially Chalkbeat Tennessee, go to chalkbeat.tn.org. Thank you. The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Welcome to Spill It. Billet is true stories told in front of a live audience. Everyone has a story. Are you ready to spill it? Hello, welcome to the Spill It Podcast. Our episode this week is from our Teachable Moments event, which was sponsored by Chalkbeat.org and was recorded at America Studios on February 11th, 2018. Our first story was told by Queen T, is entitled American Dream. Good evening. Nice and cold outside, so that's why I'm all dressed like an Eskimo, an Ethiopian Eskimo, but hey, an Eskimo. <laughs> Have you ever had a job that you liked so much, you loved the company so much, you wanted to get a tattoo of the logo somewhere on your body? No. No. <laughs> Too bad for you, because I had such a job. Um, Josh, this this mic is like in my eyes. I have to figure out how to. Oh, sorry, Sean's <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? The queen is up here. Hello. Okay. No, down, down. Yes. Thank you. Sorry, he's new. <laughs> okay, getting back to the job. No, I did not get the tattoo, but I really, really considered getting it because I loved this job so much. Before this job, I used to work for Saint Jude, which. I equally loved, but didn't pay as much. So one day, just with pure luck, I ended up with this amazing job working as the executive assistant to the CFO at Stanford Financial Group. I don't know how many of you know that, but you will in a minute. This was the most amazing job I've ever had. It paid beautifully. Um, I had a fancy corner office as an executive assistant, imagine. So my boss's office, meanwhile, was an apartment. <laughs> so you walk through my office, which was fabulous, had a panoramic view of the city. It was beautiful. My brother came to visit, and he said, uh, he walked into my office, oh, is this your boss's office? I'm like, no, this is mine. <laughs> and then I, I said, let me show you the boss's office. We go, it's, it's uh, dark um, marble and... You, it has a full bathroom with where you can take shower if you want to. It had a kitchenette. Technically, you could cook in there. It had a, a living area where he had a meeting with three couches. You know, that burgundy deep leather. Um, do you remember that globe 
alcohol container thing like you, you open it and it has all these like fancy whiskey and things that I couldn't even pronounce yeah it was one of those offices and uh, you walk in the hallway and it's it was built from mahogany that came from the Amazon because you know clearly Tennessee wood is not good enough right this is right at Poplar and Ridgeway by the way and I, I started working there and, and I was spending most of my days with the 1%, so my head started swelling a little bit. And I was, you know, I was the girl next door prior to that, along from the third world. You know, I had to learn English, so most of my words, oh, that's so cool. That was part of my vocabulary, and I, I had started using words like, oh, no, it's superb. <laughs> See, you have to upgrade, right? But it really was getting to my head. And I had just gotten married a year prior to that. We had our little baby. I was making all this money. And it, life was good. When my boss traveled, I had to travel with him. But we don't do commercial. No. It was private. I, I was flying private. And, I, you know, I used to drink water in Dasani bottles. But I got on the plane my first time and it was Voss in a glass bottle. I was like, what is this? I thought it was vodka, honestly. <laughs> and after that, I'm like, I'm not throwing away this bottle. But you know, I have to be cool. It can't be with the 1% and take an empty bottle, right? So I go to the bathroom and I put it in my bag. I'm like, you're going home with me. <laughs> I was, you know, and they're like, you know, for the golf event, everybody must come and see your sucker. I was like, what is your sucker? <laughs> so I'd Google stuff and go out and buy seer sucker. <laughs> have to match the 1%. So things were great, to say the least. I was five months pregnant with my daughter, and my husband had been in this country now at, for a year and a half, almost two years at that time. And our life was getting started. It was shishifufu, which I like. And the, as smooth as it was, one day... Actually, it wasn't one day. I know exactly what day it was. It was February 9th, 2007 at 11.30 a.m. So that day, my husband ha was in the process of getting his green card. He was supposed to come. We were supposed to have lunch together, and we were going to go to the immigration office and for him to give his fingerprints or whatever the process was. So he calls me from the garage and says, I'm downstairs. I said, come up for a little bit. We'll go have lunch and we'll go do your green card thing. So while I was waiting for him, I walk up to the front um, and I'm chit-chatting with the receptionist. And this office was on the third floor in the, in the building and has a, it was, had a glass door from wall to wall so you can see who's coming out of the elevators. There were four elevators to be exact. And I'm just you know, idle chatter with the receptionist. And, I'm, of course, I'm waiting for him. So I'm looking at the elevator, talking to her, looking at the elevator. And something strange happened. At the, all the elevators, the doors opened at the same exact time, which I had never seen before. And my husband comes out of one of them. And then the other three was full of guys in SWAT gear, all dressed in black with a SWAT and the machine guns. 
So I'm thinking, oh my God, who did I marry? Pablo Escobar? <laughs> what is really going on? Because honestly, if he's coming upstairs and all the elevators open, he comes out of one by himself, and then the other three, all these people are coming out, what would you think, right? So I'm freaking out, and the receptionist is freaking out, and you have to buzz in people. So they tell, him to, they tell my husband to stop. So I can see him, he can see me, He's looking like a deer in headlights, and I'm sure he's wondering what he has gotten himself into. So, I, but I can say anything to him because, I, you know, if I scream, then I don't know. I don't know. They might shoot me. I, who knows? I don't know. So the guy in a suit that was in front of these people is screaming at the top of his lung. Stanford Financial Group is now under the control of the da-da-da, I think he said FTC, whatever, tra the trade people. And uh, the judge, Ralph Javney, is doing this and the other. And, and I'm thinking, I, I know speak English. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> clearly, he's not, this is not happening, right? Because all I wanted to do is just have lunch with my husband, go give his fingerprints. But anyway, so the receptionist, who does the, who presses? There's only one button to let someone in, right? She can't find this button, okay? It's right there, but she can't find it because she's all shaking. So finally, she finds it somehow and opens it for him. He comes in, repeats the same exact thing, Ralph Javney, this, that, and the other. She calls the office manager, Puerto Rican girl, she said. She's coming down the hall. I can hear her shoes, right, in that Brazilian mahogany wood floor, right? So it's loud, and she's coming, and he's screaming at the top of his lung the same thing. He says, this office is under the control of blah, blah, blah. She said, says who? <laughs> I'm like, Sybil, not now. <laughs> not today. Okay, so here he's holding. He makes everybody come out of the office, and he tells us exactly what's happening. So our boss, the big boss, I worked for the second man in charge. The big boss, Alan Stanford, was accused of a Ponzi scheme. And he was already, you know, the authorities have gone to, I don't know, the Antigua or wherever he was and have found him. And they were, they were basically shutting down the office. Like, we're all like, we'll be, this was, I think, on a Tuesday or something. We're like, we'll be back by Friday because this can't, this really just can't be happening. So anyway, I explained the situation, my situation for them. So they let me go. They let me go. We go handle um, what we were supposed to handle uh, at the immigration office. And they call me. Um, they call me back to the office. So I go back to the office and one of the guy asks, do you know where the $9 billion is? I'm like, really, sir? <laughs> I knew the nine billion, where the $9 billion, I'd be on the plane to Ethiopia right now, right? I'm like, no, sir. If I knew they, where it was, I wouldn't be here right now. And they let me go home. But still, in my head, I was thinking, surely we'll be back tomorrow and the next day. And the days kept going and going and going. And nothing happened. And I found myself one day at the DHS office applying for unemployment. And when they told me unemployment, my unemployment check was going to be $150 a week. That's when I took my first bite of my American humble pie. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen.
Let Ohm help you get the word out on your service, product, or endeavor. Email info at theoamnetwork.com. Our next story is told by Lauren Flanagan and is entitled Unexpected Beginnings. Hi, I'm Lauren, and I teach high school history here in Memphis. Um, and when we were talking about what we were going to uh, talk about today, um, I thought about um, one of the biggest things in my life, at least my adult life, has been thankfulness. Um, it's something that's really changed my perspective on life. And um, so it's something that I communicate to my students. Um, to be honest, I don't teach high school just to um, help everybody graduate and to help everybody be smart. I honestly love to teach because I want to teach them life lessons. And one of the things that, one of the tools I want to give them in their life is a tool of looking at life differently and having a perspective of gratefulness. And so I hope to communicate that to them. And um, so Josh suggested these uh, two incidences, as I I usually talk way too much. So he said, um, you know, narrow it down to these (laughs) two things. So I'm going to talk about two incidences um, in my life, two stories that really um, helped teach me about thankfulness and change my perspective. Um, First of all, a lot of times we think that, you know, we we feel thankful when someone gives us something or something good happens. You know, that tends to, we feel like that's going to make us thankful. And um, I actually have learned thankfulness through hard times. And so um, the first uh, time that I'm thinking of is um, I graduated from college here at University of Memphis in the late, well, I guess it was 2000, and I got a job in New York City as a flight attendant, and um, also had a job at the Marriott Marquis at Times Square. That was a lot of fun. So um, I had this fun lifestyle there and loved it, um, even though I was broke most of the time. But um, September 10th, 2001, you might kind of recognize that date, um, we actually flew, I flew a shuttle from New York to D.C. and New York and Boston. We just flew back and forth like every other hour. And so we flew to Boston that day, and um, they told us that our flight was going to be delayed. And so they said, you know, there's a fire in the Newark airport, the air traffic control is having some problems, which made us nervous anyway, and there was a humongous storm that night. And so, um, you know, we were kind of upset. You know, we had to sit around Boston Airport. Um, and um, I was really upset because I had a party for the Marriott uh, waitresses that night in Manhattan, in downtown Manhattan, and my best friend and I were planning to go to this party, and we were going to stay at the Marriott right next to the World Trade Center because we got discounts. So I was so excited about this party, and I really wanted to get home and look really great and um, get out there to Manhattan. And so that was my whole focus that day. Um, About 11 o'clock that night, they told us that we would be able to uh, go back to New York. And so we flew home. Um, As we're about to land in LaGuardia, um, our plane pretty much pulled up almost vertically. And, you know, the captain came on and went, hey, everybody, sorry, there was a plane on the runway. You know, we're just going to circle around. And us flight attendants, you know, after all our trainings and all the crash videos they make you watch, you know, we were just like shaking. And so we got off of that plane just in a sweat that night. And, um, you know, we knew that if you land on another plane, you, you all explode, you know. So um, that, that itself kind of shook me up. And so then I end up, um, you know, back then, we didn't really have texting and things like that. And we didn't really have smartphones. So uh, my best friend and I, who lived at, she lived in New Jersey, I lived in Queens, we ended up trying to call on these landlines, if y'all 
I think some of y'all older people know what those are. And um, <laughs> we kept trying to call each other and missing each other. So it got to be about midnight, 1230, and, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning. And I was afraid to go into Manhattan by myself, you know, taking the subway from Queens. So I ended up not going. She ended up not going. So I went to bed, like, one o'clock that night, really bummed because I didn't get to go to my party. And so woke up the next morning, um, a friend from Memphis actually called me and said, um, I think there's been a plane crash in your city. And I was like, what? You know, she said, a plane, it's like crashed into a building or something. So I get up and turn on the news and find, oh, there are two plane crashes into buildings. You know, this is weird. And they suddenly realize, wait a minute, something else is going on here. And of course it was 9-11, 2001. And so um, woke up to that and to the whole world kind of freaking out. And especially being in New York, you know, just everyone's walking around like zombies. Um, and, of course, I had this Irish landlord who lived downstairs, and he came up, and he was like, oh, you know, it's the government. They do this in Ireland, too, you know. So he's telling us this is big conspiracy and uh, freaking us out. And we had F-15s flying over our house and everything. And um, my uh, boyfriend at the time was this uh, Arab guy who lived in Memphis, and he was calling me, telling me that some rednecks tried to beat him up because he looked like a terrorist. And so I kind of was freaking out. And... Um, we found out within the next couple of days that we had lost our jobs. And then I found out I lost my Marriott job also. So my whole life was kind of falling apart. Um, and I went home and did what any level-headed person would do. I eloped with my Arab Muslim boyfriend. Um, you know, when I was Christian, it like, we just make so much sense. Um, and so told my parents about three days later. And um, that went really well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and so then, um, about a month later found out that I was pregnant, wasn't planning on that either, but, um, uh, you know, within a, a little while after that found out that, um, he was, my husband was an alcoholic, uh, never even had been around alcoholics. I didn't really know what that was. I just knew he was gone every night and came home drunk. And so, um, the second incident that really taught me something was about five years later when I found out that, um, not only was my husband addicted to alcohol, he was pretty much addicted to drugs and to every other woman, every other woman in Memphis but me. So um, I finally got proof, because in my family we don't get divorces. So um, I got my good old proof that I could show everybody and told him to move out. And the next morning, went to work, realized I didn't feel so well, and I went to Walgreens and got a pregnancy test. Found that I was pregnant with our child. Um, Apparently, he did like me a little bit, you know. But um, so anyway, so I, I went ahead with my divorce. Um, about, about a month or so later, found out I was losing this job, my full-time job that I had at the time. So here I was, pregnant with an alcoholic womanizer child. And I had my own little girl who was about three. And um, lost my job. Found out I was losing my house, too. Had to move into my parents' house and live in the... Um, uh, you know, uh, what's that shag carpet? It was like this br thick brown shag carpet bedroom that I grew up in. And so my little girl and I shared that room. Um, so my life in my mind at the time was just falling apart. Like this is not what my life was supposed to be. Um, I had a friend who came to me and said, you know, I teach at this, or I'm in charge of this Mother's Day out. We need some people to come and I need somebody to run the three-year-old classroom. You know, I was like, I have a degree. I lived in New York. I wear fancy clothes. I've traveled the world. I don't 
change diapers anymore, except for my own kids. And, um, but I went ahead and did it um, because I was really desperate and had nothing else to do. And so um, the amazing thing was that those little smiles and hugs were really therapeutic. And um, my friend, um, what, another thing was I went to a group called Al-Anon, which is for relatives of alcoholics. Amazing support group. Um, that and my friend Kimberly, who was actually my boss, really helped change my perspective. She had been through a really difficult divorce um, with an alcoholic, and she had three kids on her own. Um, and she had sat me down and said, listen, you can choose to look at all the negatives. You can choose to look at everything going wrong in your life and what a wreck you think it is. Or you can choose to change your perspective. And you can be thankful for what you have. And you can find the good. And you can make a great future for your kids and yourself. So that's something now that I try to carry through all of my life is to change my perspective whenever situations happen that are not what I want. <laughs> because in reality, your circumstances are not what make you happy or not. It's really your perspective and if you live a life of thankfulness. So my question for you is, how is your perspective on your life? Thank you. Have an idea for a podcast? Email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your podcast. Our next story is told by Melissa Collins and it's titled, My Story. I am a National Board Certified Teacher. And a National Board Teacher's in the house? All right, good. I have a PhD from the University of Southern Mississippi. I received the Presidential Award for Science and Mathematics Teaching from President Obama. I also received the Horace Mann Educators Award, and currently I am a finalist for the Global Teacher Prize, which is worth $1 million. There were 30,000 teachers around the world that applied for this award from 179 countries. They selected six U.S. teachers, and I represent the city of Memphis, Tennessee, and my district, Shelby County Schools. It's not how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get back up. If that statement would summarize my life, that would be it. I have failed many of times, but I always got back up. I am a national and internationally recognized teacher. Some people will say I'm one of the naturals. (laughs) I'm the one that can lead the charge, and I'm the one that can model the craft of teaching. (laughs) Don't be fooled. I have gone through so many obstacles so many times, but I realized I had to get back up. I always wanted to be a teacher, and I will often pretend with my neighbors and friends 
and I was really good. They did everything I taught them to do. There were also two influential people in my life. One, Opal Jackson from Whitehaven Elementary. She was my first grade teacher. She made learning fun, and her students were active learners each and every day. Then there was my father. Dad, raise your hand. He was a football coach and a social studies teacher. He loved his football players. He would often tell them every day. And he loves, and I'm going to say that because he still loves the Whitehaven community in which we live there today. I wanted to be just like them. I went off to school to pursue my teaching career. And I want to tell you that it was easy, but it was not. I was challenged each and every day because I was an athlete on an athletic scholarship. I had to balance sports, practice, and academics. Oh, my God. And I would cry and call that man each and every day. Dad, I don't know about this. He said, you can do it, Melissa. And I end up graduating from Murray State with the support of my family and two great advisors, Dr. Hooks and Dr. Law. Faith is taking the first step when you cannot see the entire stairway. I end up getting a job at John P. Freeman Optional School in 1999. I was happy. I was going back to the community in which I was raised and lived, and I also love that community. I thought I would be successful. My principal, my former principal, she gave me a mentor, Miss Patterson. She was nice and sweet. She was on the other side of the school building. She was my mentor on paper, but she was not my mentor. How many of you agree with that? Any educators? <laughs> I was determined to find my match. And that's that woman right there. My colleague, and I call her mother, Shirley Eccles was a third grade teacher. Her students were seemed smart and gifted, and, and she would push them to the highest level. I started eating lunch with Miss Elkles. I started going to family gatherings with Miss Elkles. And if she went to the teacher lounge, I probably was running with Miss Elkles. I wanted my students to be just like her students. She would tell me what to do. She would encourage me, and she would push me along the way. Miss Elkos gave me my wings so I could fly. Thank you, Miss Elkos. (laughs) 
Everybody say fly. fly. Okay, that's giving me encouragement right now because I'm still on this journey. <laughs> I decided that I wanted to go into administration. I had my son. I looked at my chick. It wasn't too hot. <laughs> I think I started at $20,000. I said, Lord, I haven't paid the daycare and everything else that I have to pay. So I said, I'm going to go on another leadership journey. And I applied for the University of Southern Mississippi. Why? Some people may ask, and I'm going to tell you now. I end up going to University of Southern Mississippi on a basketball scholarship in 92. Oh, my God. I had to (laughs) divorce that school. That marriage was over. It just was not for me. But I felt like I quit something, right? And so I wanted to go back to University of Southern Mississippi because I felt like I left. And I wanted to go back and finish something that I should have finished so long ago. Okay? So I applied for the University of Southern Mississippi for administration in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I thought that I would get in. Send everything in. I'm in. No. (laughs) I was denied. Not once, but twice. And so I called Dr. Peters and I said, I don't understand. Why am I not getting into your program? He said, Melissa, I'm looking at your curriculum vita. And you say you want to go into administration, but you haven't done anything in leadership. I said, well, no. He's right. (laughs) I was an outstanding teacher. I did everything in front of the classroom. That was my center stage. But I did not do anything outside of my classroom wall for my school or community. And so I had my former administrator, Georgia Lane Parks, come up to me and she said, have you heard of national board certification? I said, nope. I take a look at it. I looked and it had some things where I had to work on informal, informal leadership. And I said, okay, let me go ahead and try to attain national board certification. And so I received my box, and I was excited. I thought I was going to make it the first time. I sent that box off. I remember checking uh, the email right before Thanksgiving in 2005, and it... I didn't accomplish it. I was hurt. I went into the office and I told Ms. Parks, I need to go home right now. Why? I said, I need to get myself together. She said, well, what are you going to do about it? How many points were you off? I said, well, I was only off about, I think it was seven or 11 points at the time. She said, well, it's okay. I said, no, it's not. I need to go home. I'm not going to be right for the children today. I'm not right for myself. I have failed at something again. And so I went home, and I cried for about two or three minutes. 
two or three minutes, and I get back up. I end up looking for a mentor, Kathy Howe, because I heard a lot of great things about her, and she worked, I can't remember, but she was with uh, Shelby County Schools. And I asked her, would she be my mentor on this journey? And she said yes. And so I was ready to go at it again. I failed at the Science Integrated with Math entry in the document accomplishment that dealt with leadership. Not surprised. <laughs> and so I end up researching what STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, would look like in the class with primary students. I read websites. I stayed late with the custodial workers to 11 o'clock at night researching. I told them I was working on something. I end up doing more leadership things and and learning and collaborating, and I sent off that big blue box. And my principal said, I know it's time for you to check that email again to see if you accomplish national board, and I don't want you to do it today at school. I'm thinking to myself, mm, okay, okay, Ms. Barnes, I won't check it. I asked Ms. Lambert, the teacher assistant, to check it. <laughs> I gave her my username and password, and I was shaking, and I was looking over her back, and it said, congratulations. I ran out the door, room eight. I got on all knees, and I said, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And the principal said, you checked that email. And I said, yes, I did, but I made it. <laughs> and the kid said, I think Dr. Collins won uh, some thousands of dollars. And I said, no, baby. But I'm happy. <laughs> and so I accomplished National Board Certification in Early Childhood Education. And then I said, you know what? Science Integrated Math gave me so much hard time. It was difficult. It was a struggle. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to look at the Presidential Award for Science Mathematic Teaching. And I made that the first time. I mean, they started asking me for FBI checks, and President Obama was saying, I'm glad that you'll be coming to Washington, and I was like, oh my God, I finally made something <laughs> the first time. But in pursuing National Board and the Presidential Award, I realized I needed to do something really more for my students. And when I think about my students, I think about them as being mine, such as my baby, Devon. And I love my kids. And just like my father, he tells his football players he loves them, I tell my students. I tell them that I'm their second mother. And so I need to give them opportunities that nobody else can give, regardless of the area code, zip code, or what color you look like. Everyone deserves access to a quality education. Everybody deserves access to the same resources. Everybody deserves somebody to enter a classroom and give the future a helping hand. And so I call my students junior scientists and I put on lab coats on my students. And I give them real-world problems that make them think creatively and critically about what they're doing. Harshita 
and Juan and Patrick and Lisa, they know that they can be scientists. They know that they can go off to college and pursue STEM-related careers. All because of the faith and the hope that I have for my babies. Then I had the opportunity to go off to Brazil because of the NEA Foundation Global Fellowship. That was a life-changing experience for me. What I realized, I was afraid of height and water. Well, I already knew that before I had gone, but I really didn't know that they was getting ready to make me go on these different adventures. So one of them was to go see Christ Redeemer. And Harriet Sanford from the NEA Foundation was like, Melissa, you're going. I said, no, I'm not. I said, you take me to the schools and then take me back to the hotel. She's like, no, Melissa, think about your students. And she knew how I felt about my students. Think about your district and the teachers that you can share the stories to. And so I end up going to see Christ's Redeemer. And I immediately told the teacher, don't touch me. <laughs> and I went in the back in the temple and I thought about going home and what I could do for my students. And I fell in love with global traveling and learning. And I allowed my students to interact with the people that I met along the way. And I also had the opportunity to go to India as a Maverick teacher for 12 days, working with global leaders from around the world. Also, I became passionate about policy and practice. So I began to join Teach Plus with those two back there. <laughs> we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. But we knew that educators had to be at the tables. We knew that we had to share our stories for our babies. And then, Brittany, we join America Cheese together. See, we ride or die. <laughs> when you start getting these things with educators, and it takes people, and you network, and you grow together. And so I end up joining Hope Street. I'm a part of that now. And I don't want to keep on naming stuff. And I'm active with in-store, the National uh, Teacher of the Year, because I was West Tennessee teacher in 2000. 14. And as I come to a closing, I want you to know that teaching is a challenge. Uh, you challenge yourself each and every day to get better for those precious, most vulnerable babies. And you do whatever you can to ensure that they get a quality education. And I want to say that I was successful because of the people, the teachers that I met along the way, the administrators, my district, they are very supportive, my school administrators, the people in the community. I hope that as you listen to my story, that you are inspired. And I welcome you to support me. Or even better yet, go call Shelby County Schools 
any school can use your support, whether it be financial or reading uh, to the babies or offering some kind of resources. I want you to know that I learned that failure is not an option for me or my students. I refuse to hear the word no. If I do, I'm going to get back up until I hear a yes. I also learned that even though I was on a road to be an administrator, sitting in an office, that would have been great. But I wanted to continue to be in the center stage of my own classroom. Because you see, the students are my fuel, and I am their fire. Thank you. Hi, I'm Christy. And I'm Carly. And we host Surf Memphis, the podcast where we let strangers sleep on our couch and show them your city. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and on the oamnetwork.com slash surfmemphis. Our next story is told by Timothy Moore. It's entitled Heroes. How y'all doing? Good afternoon. See, see, that's what I'm talking about. So, so let's play a couple of games that teachers like to play. All right. So it starts off with the good afternoon. See how that works? <laughs> See, the magic is already working. The teacher magic is already working. All right. So um, I'm Timothy Moore, uh, Urban Thoughts. I'm a poet, um, creative writing director. And uh, we're here to spill it for teachable moments, right? So um, most of us don't really understand, like, the concept of teachable moments, right? We uh, Curriculum states that a teachable moment is those small moments in a lesson where we can kind of input some soul or reference material to deepen the lesson, right? Um, but because of uh, test scores and everything like that, we need to keep it popping, keep it moving, right? And knowing what happens in a classroom is you rush right over the teachable moments. We, we're so concerned about the scores and so concerned about the outcome that we don't look at the input of what, what's happening. So today I'm going to talk about our superheroes. Kind of related to teachable moments, not really, but uh, <laughs> you'll figure it out in a minute, all right? So, this is how it works, all right? I'm going to count to three, all right? Three, one, two, three, uh, one, two, three, all right? <laughs> and on the count of three, you're just going to yell out your favorite superhero, all right? Right? All right, okay? See that? There's that teacher checking for understanding there. See, we're looking, looking around. <laughs> See, I see the snaps of approval. See, I see all the, these are teacher tricks. I'm laying down some really good stuff here. All right, so here you go. <laughs> One, two, three, Spider-Man. Cool. All right, so I didn't hear none of that. But it all made sense to you, and this was important. All right, so um, my favorite superhero is Superman. Like, I saw the, I saw the, the, the guy on TV, and, and he jumped up, and he flew around and, and was faster than a speeding bullet. And I was just amazed. I was like, this is amazing. Like, he gets shot and doesn't die. It's funny to some of you. <laughs> it wasn't funny to me. Uh, in my neighborhood, the Tuskegee, Alabama was very small, poverty-ridden. And we came up to Memphis. Um, we lived in a, in a very hard North Memphis. And people died there. A lot of people died there. So to see something on TV where a man could get shot and not die, could fly across buildings, could do all these amazing magical things, was so magical to me 
as a young black boy in education trying to figure out how to live and how to breathe and how to be. So here I am in kindergarten, and I'm looking at Miss Pearson, and she's like, hey, how are you doing, little, little Tim? You know, she called me Timmy. I hate it now. Uh, but at the time, it was amazing. It was like endearment. And I would walk up to Miss Pearson. I'd be like, hey, yeah. That's the five-year-old walk. That's the, that's the, it's kind of like half wobble, half actual walk. But it gets there. It, it happens. So I get there, and Miss Pearson's like, uh, take your seat. And I'm like, oh, my. She's like Wonder Woman. She's like Wonder Woman. She, she's tall and dark skin and just all kind of black melanin and just beautiful and just outstanding. She's teaching me stuff like two plus two equals four. And when I said no, it's one, she didn't argue. She said prove it. And I was like, because you take these two quarters and you take these two quarters and that's one dollar. And that's one. And she was like, that's right, Timmy. And I was like, ah, Miss Pearson, you know. So I go home and uh, I'm telling my mom about Miss Pearson. I'm like, man. You know, she has these teachable moments. You know, I, not really. Like, I'm, I'm five. I'm, I didn't say teachable. I was like, she's great. She's awesome. She's so cool. Like, you know, I'm doing like a little five-year-old thing, you know, the thing the five-year-olds do. And uh, <laughs> I get there. My mom's like, all right, cool. Uh, great day. Uh, we're, uh, grocery shopping. So I'm like, cool. Uh, so we go grocery shopping. And we're going to the, the Piggly Wiggly. There's a, such a thing. I'm not sure. Any, anybody know about a Piggly Wiggly? Right. <laughs> yes, I don't feel alone. <laughs> I feel so welcome. This is awesome. <laughs> I was afraid of that. I was like, nobody's gonna know what I'm talking about. All right, so Piggly Wiggly is a little chain grocery store. It's awesome. Uh, so we're, we're there, and you know, we're there for all the important stuff. You know, the, the, the ketchup, uh, the chicken. Uh, don't judge me, chicken. Uh, <laughs> you'll get it later. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> rice, uh, frosted flakes. It's awesome. And then all of a sudden, like, I see the owl. And it's like the owl of toys. It's like, ah. It's like, that's what I imagined it was like when it was five. Like, the pardon gates of wisdom and, and light and, like, <laughs> just stuff. So uh, I see this owl. And I'm like, oh, my God. There's a comic book. Just like the one on the commercials. And the commercial was like, Superman battling everybody for one ninety nine Only at your neighboring stores. <sighs> And I was like, yes, this is awesome. Got to get one of those. Got to get one of those. So we go into the store. I'm, I'm running through the store. I'm like, well, not really. I'm, not, I'm really just walking fast, doing the five-year-old thing again. Um, <laughs> and I see, I see the comic book, and I'm like, oh. and there's a thing that black moms do. Like, my mom gave me the depth stare. It's kind of like a super, superhero thing. She's like, see that? Stops everything. It freezes everybody in their emotions. Nobody's moving. I'm sitting there. I'm just standing there like. <sighs> so I wait. You know, I wait. You know, you learn how to wait things out. Right. So I wait. She turns her head and I, I, I start to reach for it. I'm going for it. I got, I got to see the inside of this thing. I got to know what it's like. I got to see Superman. I, I've come too far. <laughs> it's too many little kindergarten steps. I got, I got to do it. Right. And I reach out. And, and I'm almost touching, and my mom just yanks, and it's like I don't know, like like my mom, and I don't know if this is a black mom thing or a universal mom thing. I don't know, but moms have an uncanny ability to to just grab you and not even look, like it's just a like, kid, and it's like before you know you're there, you don't even know how you got there, you don't know how you got snatched up there, you don't know what happened, you just know that at one point you was walking, and the next moment you're right there next to your mom, and then she has like the the mumble. Uh, just, I don't know, it's like a blockade of everything. Like, nobody can hear it but you. 
It's like it's like a secret whispering technique of, of ninjutsu or something. It's like, don't you ever touch anything in your life or you will die. I'm like, die? Mom, is that shit like you're gonna kill me? Like I'm just <laughs> over a comic book? Like I'm just trying to see it. You know, but of course I'm not saying any of that. I'm like, yes, mom. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. And then she says, touch it again. I'm gonna tell your daddy. I'm like, not my daddy. Like, it's not that serious. Like, oh, I don't even want to touch it no more, though. I don't even want to touch it no more. So the next day, we go into class, and Miss Pearson has it. Oh, yeah, it's the comic book. And she whips that thing out. She's like, Superman, we're going to read it. I'm like, in class? <laughs> like, we're going to read this in class? Like, we're not going to read no, no textbooks. Like, are you serious? Are you really sick? Like a whole comic book. And like she lays it out and I'm like, I get to touch it? <laughs> She's like, yeah. So like, I don't know. Like, I, I guess I had like flashbacks. So I'm looking around for my mom. I'm like, <laughs> you know. So I kind of ease up to it, you know, with a little five-year-old kind of walk thing. <laughs> and I get there and I'm like, uh, cool. So I flip it over. I'm like, oh, man. And I learned how to read, uh, right, doing comic books. It was my first teachable moment of understanding that. It's not about the content, but the context and how you flip it, right? So many of our kids come with so many different avenues of understanding, so many lexile levels, and we get so sedated in our teaching and our books and our curriculum that we forget this about teaching to the soul. So that was my first teachable moment about teaching. It was like, you know what? Man, let me just find something that I can access these kids with, something I can move them with. Whether it's hip-hop or comic books or, or, or astronomy or NASA, whatever it's going to take. Let's dig and let's use that, right? Let's get out the politics and let's just use that. So we're going up, and, and I finally get to an age where I'm like, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and you realize that superheroes is probably not an option, right? <laughs> Running around in the underwear with a cape on uh, for a living uh, doesn't work for many people. <laughs> so, so I was like, what's the next best thing, right? So I'm, I'm in college, and I meet my professor, uh, Dr. Blakemore, University of Memphis, a brilliant mind educator. And he's like, what is your purpose? Mess me up. I was like, to live, maybe? <laughs> to graduate so my mom and dad don't kill me? I don't know. Like, uh, you know, and that question is always so so interesting. I, I, I continue to ask it today in my classes, like, what is your purpose? Like, we're gonna we're gonna learn, we're gonna think, we're gonna touch, we're gonna write, we're gonna we're gonna do all that, but but what is your purpose? Like when you leave here out of my classroom, like what what would your purpose be, right? What would be your inspiration to others? Not not what inspires you, but what, what would be your inspiration to others? Right? So in that moment I realized like I wanna teach. And the main reason was simple. At seventeen, I buried one of my best friends, Willie Brown Jr. I cut him down from a rope that he had used for suicide. And I still carry that rope today, just a little piece of it. It reminds me that in the moment that you lose hope, you can lose yourself. In the moment that you lose just a moment to believe that you can be more, that you can be another black boy in the, in the grave. You can be another boy in the grave. You can be another woman in the grave, another girl in the grave. The moment that we lose hope, you lose everything. So just for a moment, I was like, I don't want to ever have another black boy that looks like me to ever just lose hope. So I went into the classroom, and they asked me when they interviewed me, where do you want to go? I was like, give me the roughest, toughest neighborhood you can and put me in there. <laughs> they sent me 
to a school in Memphis. And it was a beautiful school. I loved it. I loved everything about it. Because every kid in there looked just like me. And every kid in there was trying to do something and trying to be a superhero. And they didn't know nothing about no supervillains. They just knew they wanted more than what they had. And it was so beautiful because all of them was just pushing for education. And they didn't care about the obstacles or the kryptonite or anything else that anybody told them that they couldn't have. They were trying to fly. It was the most beautiful thing and experience I ever did in my life. And in a moment, I met a very, very small, small woman, Miss Velma Hodges. <laughs> and she was, she was about this tall. And I was yelling in class one day. I just snapped. Y'all going to get this lesson? I don't understand it. You know, <laughs> it was like a first-year thing. Like, you, <laughs> a first-year thing. If you have never snapped once in your first year, I question you. <laughs> so, so, I question you. I, I, don't, I don't trust you. <laughs> you, got, you got to have snapped at least once. Right? So, and, and it was, I was just like, you got to get this lesson. It's important. You got to get this. This is like the Hughes. You got to get it. Like, it's important. It's like, it's, it's, it's oh, why don't you get it? Miss Hodge came back and she was like, <laughs> she just laughed at me. Like, just, just like, <laughs> she, she, just, just like now, like I'm laughing. It's just so uncontrollable. I'm thinking about it, it's just like that type of laugh. It was just uncontrollable laughter. And I'm looking at this little woman. I'm like, I'm having a mini meltdown. <laughs> um, and you're laughing at me. Like, what, what are you laughing at? And she, she, has, she gives me my next teachable moment. She says, because you're teaching them the volume to which they can control you. And I said, what? <laughs> she says, you're teaching them the volume of which they can control you. So, class is in session. Class makes noise. Make noise. <laughs> Get, no, seriously, make noise. Give it to me. Give it to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, be quiet. Make more noise. Yeah. Yeah, be quiet. Yeah, make more noise. Oh, sh- shut up. You know, we never say shut up now. <laughs> that is a public service Disclaimer, do never say shut up in your classroom. Say be quiet. Say please restrain your volume. Um, other helpful things to keep your job. Don't do that. It's a bad teacher thing. Seriously. <laughs> so, but what you do is you're raising that volume up. And the moment you yell, you just taught your class the level that they can go to before you absolutely snap, reach your level, or tell them to be quiet. So from the rest of your life in teaching, you're constantly driving that noise level up, up and up and up. And for the rest of the year, you have a headache. And you're going home like, why is this possible? Because you're doing it. Stop it. So Ms. Hodges told me, she was like, stop it. She was like, you want to be quiet? Get quieter. You want to be calm? Be love. You want them to love? Be you. And if you do those things, then, then the teacher moments will come. So we're here. And I'm in high school. I'm teaching at Grad Academy, and uh, they come in. I'm, I'm giving my heart to the school. I love the school. We've done beautiful things. My uh, slam team is with number two in the whole state of Tennessee. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Um, my mentee, Kyla Lewis, is number two in the, na- in the entire world. She went to Brave New Voices, international poet number two in the entire world. Came back, uh, launched a newspaper that, that has just re- crazy reviews and, and national success and got national awards. and I got national awards. and I, I look at them every night and I'm like, wow, congressional awards for education and giving back to my community. Being a superhero, a thing that I think you should just do. And I'm sitting there looking at all the awards and they come in and they say, well, we're closing. Um, and there's, there's a lot of different reasons, you know. Education is a really interesting thing. But the thing I know is everybody in that building loves the kids 
And everybody in that building loves the community. And everybody in that building loves what we do. And it was so beautiful. And now I'm devastated. I'm honestly devastated. And not necessarily because I'm losing a job or trying to figure out where I go. Jobs will come. You know, interviews will come. Things will happen. But I was devastated because I was wondering, have I given my kids enough? You know, will they be okay tomorrow when I'm not here to see that student A is sad when she doesn't say hello in the mornings? Uh, will I see um, student B uh, be okay when after lunch he hasn't eaten enough and I have to slip on some graham crackers? Um, will, will student B, uh, D, that's hiding her pregnancy, uh, will she be okay enough to tell her mom that she's actually pregnant? Those stories and those, those brief moments that we teach ourselves and teach others of how to be just a human in the classroom is what being a superhero is about, and I'm breaking Right? I've, I've reached my kryptonite, and I'm hurting, and I'm trying to figure out, like, how do you love past that? How do you give that hope? And a kid came up to me and said, Mr. Moore, what you doing? And I'm like, uh, crying, kid. <laughs> like, uh, obviously crying, right? And uh, another kid comes in, another kid, another kid. And finally, like 30 kids in my classroom, they're all looking at me, right? And I said, Mr. Moore, it's going to be cool. I'm like, what? She's like, we know this stuff. This is life. I said, what? They're like, what did you tell us on our first day? I said, what's your purpose? She said, exactly. So, Mr. Moore, you've been our superhero. We see that you're human. We see that you can cry. That's beautiful. But today we learn about life. And in life, we know that you taught us that when life happens, you got two choices. You can give up or you can press forward. That's it. That's all. That's, that's it. Like, <laughs> fundamental truth, that's, that's all. You can give up and not try and just say, oh, well, it's too hard. It's too difficult. Or you can press forward and say, all right, one more, one more time. One, one more time. And what happens is a beautiful thing that happened. You, your body and your mind will rise to the occasion. And those students, they rose and they loved on me. The whole day they sent me letters. They, they'll give me recommendations. Like, I'll give you a recommendation letter, Mr. Moore. I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> you write that and you tell your mom and dad to write it too. Sign that joint. <laughs> Send a picture. <laughs> Seriously. Look, <laughs> need a job. <laughs> so then um, I had them come and, and a kid that, that became one of my favorites, you know. Um, one of those, I call them interesting children. <laughs> interesting children, right? And um, he taught me about perseverance. Because he came in, he was like, Miss Mom, I'm going to quit. I'm done. I'm, I'm walking out to school today. It's over. Like, everything's over. And I asked him, I was like, what's your purpose? He was like, to graduate so I can go back and help my mom. I said, does that change with circumstance? He says, no. I said, all right. Well, we got a purpose to do. So now I'm just teaching like I'm on fire, right? Time is short. I got half a semester. I got things to do. I got to move these kids. I got to love them. They got to love me. We got stuff to do. We got purpose. See, the thing about superheroes is this. During the course of whatever mission you choose, whatever chance you may have, or whatever circumstance, it's about your purpose. Like, what do you truly want to do with your purpose? Or will you let the villains take over the world? To me, my purpose is simple. To educate, to love, and to find those teachable moments that those students gave me, that gave me such valuable purpose and to remind me that through it all, no matter what the circumstances may be, that our heads will be held high 
our melanin will always be dark, and we always will press forward. Thank you. Hi, I'm Cecilia Lana, the host of Walkabout Radio, a podcast which treks into the lives of industry icons and artists, both locally and globally, who will take us on a journey to discover how culture has impacted their successes. Expect humor, lifestyle tidbits, raw life lessons, and some fantastic cameos. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or walkthewalkabout.com. Our next story is told by Lindsay Kamen. It's entitled, You Could Be a Teacher. Every time my mom used incorrect grammar, the wrong who, the wrong whom, I was there to correct her. <laughs> and every time she was there in her sweetest, most sarcastic voice to say, you could be a teacher. And every time she said that, I rolled my eyes and said that would never happen. <laughs> and I think back that exact same eye roll is the same eye roll I've gotten from my students from the past six years. <laughs> I graduated with an English degree. I was waitressing at a pizzeria. I was also working part-time at a gym. I had a patron ask me in between serving gluten-free pizzas what I was doing. And the narrative changed very quickly from I was working through college to I had just graduated with an English degree, and I realized I had become part of this demographic of English majors that didn't know what they were going to do. <laughs> so what else does an English major do but check out some teacher preparation programs? So I'm onward in my mission of just having a path. So I'm checking out these teacher preparation programs, and there's the one that I applied to I was not accepted to. After six weeks of applying and interviews and hoping I would get in and this would be my path, declined. Luckily, they did put a couple other programs on the bottom of the email, and after researching those, I ended up here in Memphis with about a four-week turnaround. So in order to get here to Memphis, I had to live with someone. I check out Craigslist. I get a roommate. I'm here in Hernando, Mississippi. I'm in my teacher preparation program the next day. I walk into an auditorium of a South Memphis school that's actually not a South Memphis school anymore. They've been overtaken by the state. And there's about 100 people in this auditorium buzzing for what's to come. There's career changers, there's ex-policemen, there's ex-pastors, and there's fresh out of college students just like me. So it came, it came to be that not all these people in this room would even get close to finishing the year. Um, I didn't realize that until after a couple weeks when the director of the program was walking around asking for praxis scores so urgently in between our teacher training sessions that she, they, they came to the door and they said, all right, we need praxis scores, we need them, we need them, we need them. I had already given mine and the woman next to me said, I can't find mine, I don't know where they are. And I said, oh, no, uh, her name's Miracle. Miracle, it's really easy. You just have to click here. You go here. You think you're not going to find it, but they're actually just one more click away. And she said, they're not posted yet. And I said, no, no, Miracle, it's really easy to find. And she said, they're not posted yet. And uh, got the message at that point. Um, so then afterwards, she tells me, Lindsay, you don't need to take the practice to be a teacher in Tennessee. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I took two practice tests. I blew a couple hundred dollars. Um, the next day, 
the director of the program came in the door and uh, did a little one of these to Miracle, and uh, I never saw Miracle again. So for that, to say all that is to say that our teacher preparation program became like a reality TV show of sorts where you never know who is going to be voted off or who was going to get the proverbial rose, so to say. <laughs> um, so from there, you are not necessarily guaranteed a job. You're told that if you handle your business and apply to schools that you will get a teaching position. Um, so with having zero sensibility of where of geographic, excuse me, having zero sensibility of the geographic nature of Memphis, what schools are good, what schools are bad, where you're supposed to teach, where you want to teach, I set off with my handful of resumes going anywhere my program tells me to go. I'm eating lunch. They say, hey, Hamilton needs a special education teacher. I drop my lunch. I pay the bill. I'm there. They just hired somebody. Hey, Central needs a teacher. I go. I give them my resume. They're literally interviewing someone. I end up at Cypress Middle School in North Memphis. I go um, through North, North Memphis neighborhood, relying on my GPS. Again, never being to Memphis, never, never exploring Memphis before. So I pull up in the parking lot. I get out really excited to try to see if, you know, if there's anyone else around trying to get this job. And I get out of my car, and I do kind of a panoramic of the area. And I see, I see trash. I see a trash bag. I see an abandoned tire. I see another abandoned tire. I'm wondering where the car is. Um, I turn for the rest of my panoramic, and there is an abandoned apartment building in the parking lot of the school's parking lot. Caution tape, boarded up windows, but still you see people leaving and going out of the building. I get back in my car. (laughs) I have my resume in my hand. I'm like, I don't even know if this school is open. Am I at the right place? I go through all this, no, like, no, you're not going to do this. There are other schools. Just just drive off. And then I have this realization of, you need a job. You came here. You're living with this girl off Craigslist. She's just as crazy as you would think someone from Craigslist would be. <laughs> and you need to have enough money to not have to live with this woman that you don't know anymore. So I get out of my car, and I go in. A couple days later, I have an interview, and... Um, I'm just I'm excited to be there. This is my first out-of-college career interview. And the principal tells me, she says, I'm going to shoot straight with you. She said, we're a failing school. Okay. I don't really, I don't know what that means. I don't know the impact of what it means to be a failing school. She says uh, some mumbo-jumbo about some ratings. Um, if you are not a five, you're a one, we could be closed, like, before the end of the year, we could be closed. We're definitely going to be closed next year. Are you okay with that? I said, uh, "Is there an opportunity to coach, like volleyball, soccer?" She said, "Yeah." I said, "All right, I'm in." So um, from there, I'm a special education teacher brought in by my program um, to be an inclusion teacher. And for those of you that aren't as close to the education community, what that means is that I'm in the classroom to be an advocate for students who have disabilities so that they can thrive in a general education classroom. So I'm there, and uh, I have not seen ever a, a special education teacher operate within a general education classroom. All I have are my case files and my students' names, and I don't know them, I don't know their faces, so I'm in our language arts, seventh grade language arts classroom, and I'm circulating and trying to figure out who are my kids. 
And I'm looking around, I'm looking for Christian, who's actually spelled Christine, but he insists his name is Christian, but his birth certificate says Christine. And I find Christian, and uh, he's, he's going through the problems with our language arts teacher, um, but nothing is spelled correct. Many letters, you know, flopped, mismatched. I'm like, all right, Christian, I don't, I don't know what to do about that right now. I'm going to come back to you, Christian. Um, I find Angel, who is on number three, but our lead teacher, Ms. Hill, is on number eight. I uh, kind of tap her paper. All right, Angel, I need, I need you here. I'm going to come back and support you some more. Um, I find Yamar, who looks so into his work, and I'm so excited. I'm like, yes, Yamar. Yes, Yamar, I see you. And Yamar is so intensely still drawing the smiley face next to his name. So I don't, I don't know what to do. The six weeks that I had did not prepare me for this. So moving on to spring, I did get that coaching position where we introduced a soccer team to Cypress Middle School for the first time. We had a population of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, about 300 students total. 100 students came out for soccer tryouts. <laughs> 100 students. And we had a field, a dirty field because there's trash everywhere. We had a field. We had some cones. Rhodes helped us out with some socks and some balls and whatnot. And uh, I had... Pretty much every kid, um, can I use my hands? Um, no, not unless you're the keeper. What's a keeper? Uh, so that was, um, they, were, they were eager to learn the new sport. So we, we didn't have goals. We had a field. We ended up getting a team down to about 15 students. We only have 11 jerseys um, because that's all we could afford to buy, right? And knowing that we're probably not going to be a school next year, that's all the money they would give me. So everywhere we went was just a reminder of how we were not prepared to be as successful as other places. Um, going to schools, um, I remember going to Cape Bond, and we had kids, if they wanted playing time, they would swap jerseys really quickly and run in the game, but they're wearing another kid's sweaty jersey. And the other kids who weren't willing to do that had red cotton shirts with a duct-taped number in the back. Um, going throughout the season, we... No surprise, didn't win any games. Um, we didn't know how to shoot the ball into the net and make a goal. They took one shot all season. They made it, so I kept telling them, you're one for one, y'all. You don't realize we are shooting 100% here. Let's go. Um, but things just kept keeping us down. We had, um, we had an away game where we are waiting on the buses and – the buses were so stressful. We're supposed to be there by 4.30. We're 15 minutes away. It's 4.15. I'm like, buses, where are you? My students are warming up. And I'm calling the coach. I'm calling the referee. I'm telling them we're on our way. We're on our way. We're on our way. They said, be here by 4.30 or you forfeit. We put all, all 15 kids into two cars. Don't tell anybody I did that. <laughs> and we get there. We get there just as soon as everyone else is leaving the field. And uh, Cassio looks at me and he says, Coach, you mean we didn't even play and we lost? <laughs> yes, that is accurate. Um, so going this entire season without winning a game, uh, we get to our last game, and it's winnable. And I'm telling them this, y'all. Like, they don't know your, the rest of your season. They don't know where you come from. This is winnable. Clean slate. We get there, we lose. Um, <laughs> but... At the end of the game, my kids, like unprovoked by me, took our Gatorade water dispenser. 
you know it's coming, <laughs> and dumped the entire water uh, dispenser on my head in about 50-degree weather or so. And, uh, I, I mean, I didn't care. It was a beautiful gesture. And it, it made me realize, um, as much as I rolled my eyes at my mom, like, yeah, I could do this. And uh, I will say, sorry, Mom, because she'll probably watch this later, although my mom still doesn't know when to use who or whom, <laughs> there are hundreds of students throughout Memphis that I know damn sure well do. The OAMnetwork.com. All original podcasts released weekly in Memphis, Tennessee. Our next story is told by Jessica Crenshaw. It is entitled Death of a Dream. Wow, this is actually good. We don't have to move. Um, I actually want to tell you guys that I really should not even be standing right here because 10 years ago, the love of my life tried to kill me. In reality, I should be somewhere with a bullet in my head. But life is funny like that. But see, what makes this story so interesting is the love of my life wasn't even a person. The love of my life was the American dream. See, in the house I grew up in, instead of dreaming about Prince Charming coming to come save me, my mother taught me that the only thing in this world that would save me is a good education to get your job And don't depend on nobody. Because nobody's going to give you anything free. And if they do, you probably don't want to do what you got to do in exchange for it. So, while other girls my age were dreaming about this Prince Charming riding in on a white horse, climbing up the stairs to come and save them, I was dreaming about getting through school eventually graduating high school, eventually graduating college. So all along my kindergarten to senior year, that was my saving grace. That, that's what I thought my key to happiness was, was getting this education, getting this good job, and being totally independent from everybody. So while most girls my age were dreaming of going out with the captain of the football team or in the age that I grew up going out with the captain of the cheerleader squad, I was, I had that dream, that same dream of going to law school, graduating from college and, and having that, that, that key to happiness. So like most type A personalities do, I had everything regimented out. I had everything planned to a T. This would not fail. I put all of my eggs in that one basket. So I did my internship when I was in college, and I flew through everything. I was probably, in my head, I was probably about two months ahead of schedule. Everything was going good. I was riding high. I was literally the top in the class of the internship, and I had the dean of admissions and the dean of school literally begging me to go to school there. It couldn't have got any any better than that. And then one fateful day, I got an email saying I only had one more meeting before I was admitted into the school. So I went to that meeting, took that drive up there to Little Rock. And you ever get a bad feeling before you step into a place and you just try to shake it off? Nah, that's probably just my nerves. 
That's probably just the negative thoughts that are coming into my head. Well, I probably should have listened to those bad thoughts. Because throughout the course of the admissions process, I was getting calls, texts, emails, everything. They wanted to make sure that I was coming to that school. But when I got to the meeting, the dean of admissions and the dean of the school was literally dodging me. It, it was almost like it was almost like a dodgeball kind of tag game that I was trying to catch up with them to to get an answer. You know, I I came up there excited. You know, this is this is the last meeting I got. I got to go through all of these formalities, but I never got a a word in edgewise with them. So I packed up my car, went back to little, uh, went back to Memphis, and ended up getting a rejection letter on the same day that I went to the meeting that was supposed to be before I got into the school. So I'm mad as hell. I'm like, now, wait a minute. Now, you know, Memphians, we, we, we hate wasting gas and hate wasting money. And I didn't did both in one day. <laughs> so I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm, I'm writing my own diary of a slightly agitated black woman right now. And then what made it worse, I got to wait until the weekend because everything in the South is closed. So I had a lot of time to stew. I was mad, angry, sick, everything. So the first thing I do is pick up the phone and call the assistant to the dean of admissions. And she was a sweet old lady, but I gave it to her. I said, what the hell is going on? I drive all the way up here to Memphis, wasting gas, wasting time, wasting money, and I couldn't even get a word in edgewise with the people who had basically been stalking me to go to this school. Well, she said, well, Miss Crenshaw, I understand. And then she said something I would never forget. She said that my name was left on the email list of accepted students, and they just simply forgot to take it off. Mm. I've never been kicked in the nuts, but maybe that's what it feels like. (laughs) I'll never have nuts, and I admit that, contrary to popular belief. But I literally felt like somebody had kicked me in my stomach. And from there, everything was slow motion. Everything was slow motion. That's when you know you're either really sad or really mad because stuff just slows down. And I said, I'm... I'm so mad, I'm laughing. I'm like, what do you mean they forgot to take my name off of the list? You just clicked the X. And she's like, well, Miss Crenshaw, I understand it was was just a mistake. And see, what made the the situation so worse is when I got the letter, it was torn up, crinkled up, and wrinkled. Now, see, that's life kicking you while you're down because that letter felt the exact way I felt that day. The top half of the leather was literally ripped off. And that's how I felt. I felt like my picture of this American dream had been ripped off. I'm like, now wait a second. I've I've spent the better half of my life from age six to age 18 believing that if I go to law school, if I get this good education, my, my stuff will be set. So for 2008 to 2009, I'm sitting in my room. I'm so depressed I can't move. Lowest part of my life. But I want to thank a man named Bill. He comes around my house every month. And he tells me that I owe him some money. (laughs) 
Well, in 2009, three bills showed up to my house and said, baby, it's time to get your ass to work. (laughs) So here I am, fresh out of college, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. I got the whole world in front of me, right? I graduated in the recession, just a little asterisk there. And I am working in a crap job. I just got finished paying a hundred grand for this education. Dang it. Woo! I had to go straight Ric Flair because I still feel that. Woo! Everybody. So I worked this job trying not to kill myself because I thought about it two times. I was almost successful. That's probably one of the one of the few moments I thank God I was a quitter because I usually don't quit anything. So from 2009 to 2011, my, my day consists of about four, well, five things. Crying, going to work, writing, crying some more, and drinking. So that's how I got through that period of time. And that's where... I call it my dark place, but since I love Get Out so much, that was my sunken place. Because I was literally watching myself deteriorate. But in 2011, I had one of those rare days off from my crap job, and I said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to the library. I got to read. I got to get myself going. And it was April. And in my school, we didn't have football. Like, we were just, you know, like the nerds and the aunt, the folks who read anime and stuff like that? That was my school. We literally went to a school where we could not get beat up by anybody. <laughs> I loved it. We didn't have Greek life, what none of that. But our football team was poetry, and I was one of those poets. I'd hit the pinnacle of the pyramid of self-actualization. Please Google it. It'll change your life. So I step into the library, and it's April, and and every time in college, we celebrate National Poetry Month. So I walk up to the counter. Incidentally, it's the manager. And I said, hey, what are you guys doing for National Poetry Month? He looks me dead in my face and says, you tell me. And before Oprah ever had an aha moment, I think she stole that from me because I had one in the library. (laughs) It's like my mind did a shift. That one question was, what are, what are you going to do about it? What do you want to see in your life right now? I realized at that moment that, hey, life doesn't have to happen to me. I can happen to life. I can have a, a change in this world. I can actually get up and do something. So from there, I started the Spartan City Poetry Club. Two reasons. I saw the movie 300. (laughs) I saw that movie and I wanted to build a deck. I I got my best friend. I'm like, look, we're going to have to build something. Whoop somebody's ass. We're going to have to do something. I'm feeling all types of love and violence in this room. And I love Michigan State anything. And I went to A. Hey, that's all right. The hate just makes me darker. It's all right. And I went to White Station. Can I get some of that love back, White Station? Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
And I looked up the Spartans. The Spartans were only good at one thing. That's it. And that's exactly how I wanted my poetry club to be. That club literally saved my life because it gave me a purpose. It, it made me realize I'm actually better at something and it ain't law. I'm actually good at teaching and helping people develop. So that was my teachable moment number one, that instead of having life happen to you, you can happen to life. Whatever you want, that saying is true. You got to be the change that you want to see in the world. So if you want to see people stop getting shot, don't shoot them. You'll get it at 2 o'clock in the morning. It'll, it'll marinate. But my second, I would say second, third, fourth, whatever type of teachable moment was I've learned in the past year life through death. My father died. I look just like him. So you're literally looking at him right now. He left. And he died of all days, St. Patrick's Day. He could drink you up under <laughs> the couch. And I'm at the funeral, and I'm literally staring at him in the casket, and I'm looking at this man that was full of life, that did whatever the hell he wanted to do, and this dude didn't get up. It wasn't like Thriller. It wasn't like Zombie Apocalypse. He wasn't getting up. And I realized right then, dag, Jess, that could be me lying in that casket. Come on, we got to, we, we, whatever we got to do, we got to do it right now. And I woke up and realized that I can't make my mama happy. I can't make society happy. I got to make myself happy. So I started taking inventory. What, what, who do I need to be with? What do I need to do? And where do I need to go to be happy? The second lesson of life that I learned through death was the death of Bernal Smith of the Tri-State Defender. Because I actually met him. Passionate guy. Nobody expected that. He taught me to have passion, to pour into your community until you bleed. Because, like, karma can pass around bad stuff. Karma can pass around good stuff, too. So pour into your community. If you say you love Memphis, prove it. He did it. And the last lesson that I learned through death was the death of my American dream. There's no such thing. And that's why our country is in such turmoil, because everything they built up is falling down. We are realizing that the wizard that was all powerful is literally just a scared man. But see, through the death of the American dream, I learned that the only dream that matters is the one you dream for yourself. Thank you. The OAMnetwork.com. All original podcasts released weekly in Memphis, Tennessee. Our next story is told by Karen Golightly and is titled, Live a Great Story. About two and a half years ago, I met this guy online, um, and it's it's not uh, exactly what you think, but it was he was just the person I was looking for. He was really big, he was super tall, he was a big guy, and he was curious and adventurous and brave, and he had a sense of humor, and he loved to explore, um, because I, I wasn't looking for a boyfriend, um, 
And I wasn't looking for a husband. I was looking for someone to shoot photos with, which seems easy enough unless you're like me and you shoot photos in abandoned buildings and ditches and places where gangs love to hang out and homeless people too. And so I felt like I needed someone to sort of watch my back, and that's what I was looking for. And I found that person in Eric Jansen. Um, And um, Eric, I kind of knew him like a little bit, but only like on social media. We had some friends, and I knew he had moved away from Memphis and then had moved back, but he'd lived here a long time and worked for the Commercial Appeal, and I didn't know what his deal was, but I had seen his pictures, and his pictures were amazing. Um, but I saw um, what he was doing, and I knew we had some common interest. I knew that you know, like he loved rooftops and cityscapes and sunsets and sunrises and abandoned buildings, and I really um, took pictures of street art and graffiti and murals, but a lot of times some of those are located in abandoned buildings. So I messaged him and I was like, can, can, you know, can we shoot together sometime? And he, he, like he did with every single person he ever met said, yes. Um, so he, um, so he was like, yeah, just pick me up. And so I came, went downtown to his apartment and I picked him up and he, um, folded his six foot five body into my car with, with his, giant, like, I don't know, size 11 boots covered in mud, you know, in my brand new SUV I'd just gotten. And he laughed, looked at the floor and laughed and apologized. And, um, and, um, I asked him, I started driving and I was like, so what's your story? And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, what's your deal? Why are you here? Why are you back here? What's the deal? And he said, um, so, you know, he told me this great story and it was about, passion and love and about guilt and regrets and um and really that he was on this personal journey to find himself find his true self and that he had come back to memphis because he could work anywhere he worked for like a um, newspaper conglomerate as an audience analyst and he could really work anywhere but his youngest children lived here and he wanted to be back here to be a better dad and to build a relationship with them and i was like okay that's cool great let's go and then he did something that people don't ever really do. Because I ask a lot of people what their story is. Um, and he asked me what mine was. And so I told him, again, the short version. And really, over the course of about 20 minutes, both of us laughed and cried, which is weird, because um, I didn't really know this guy. And, um, and we made our way to the building. And right before we got to the building, I said, there, I have like two kind of rules with exploring with people and those are that you have to always be able to see me and he was like oh shit really come on man that's you know part of the thing and I was like okay okay that's kind of why I invited you but um that's but or or how about if you can just hear me and he goes okay and I said so you know when that guy jumps me I'm gonna yell and then you're gonna come in and save the day and he said I got it and I said the other he goes what's the other one and then I think he's thinking this is like the dumbest thing I've ever done right this girl and so um, I tell him, I was like, um, so I have, I don't like edges. And he goes, like, what are you talking about? And I'd seen Eric's photos. There, there's a lot of photos where he is looking over the edge of a building. And, um, and I go, I have vertigo. And it's um, been on again, off again for like 14 years. And it makes me really nervous to be on the edge of something. Now I will climb up and over anything I can hang on to, right? And I will go on top of a roof, but there are no edges for me. And he was like, okay, okay, that's fine. Let's go. So 
we pull up to the building and he immediately jumps out of the car and jumps over a fence and crawls up through the second floor of a building before I have like, no kidding, lock the doors and close the door and, you know, and making my way. So I noted as I am want to do that the, you know, gates unlocked and you can walk in the front door because <laughs> I like the easy way if I can do that. And so anyway, um, that kind of set the pace. This guy was like 20 feet ahead of me all the time. I mean, really sort of not just metaphorically. Um, and, but we really ended up having a lot of fun shooting that day. We shot a whole bunch and he taught me, he taught me a ton and really sort of pushed me to the edge of my comfort zone. And he uh, taught me into like buying a camera, a real camera, like a real camera. And, um, then really taught me how to use it and taught me how to shoot and, low light and shoot action and shoot hula hoopers who knew that I would ever want to do that. Um, and he, he really pushed me to do a lot of stuff that I was not comfortable with that turned out to be life changing. And one of those was to sounds dumb, but to moderate this Instagram account called graffiti Memphis, look it up. Um, and you know, neither of us are paint. I mean, not even like stick figures. We were, we were terrible at that. And, but he was like, people need to see what art looks like in Memphis. And so we were both photographers, so we just photographed and featured pictures of everybody's graffiti and their street art and their public murals, anything we could get our hands on. Um, and so that was, that was really fun. He also... Um, really, like, made me um, go to all these meetups and all these group photo shoots, which is just, like, you know, an introvert's nightmare. Because um, a lot of people who are behind cameras are behind cameras because they don't really feel like they fit in. So, um, but Eric wasn't that way. He was, like, a magnet. He was an extrovert, and he really, like, all these people really flocked to him. And then he got us all together where we all, like, took pictures of each other and, like, weird stuff because... But it made me feel super uncomfortable, but he was like, look, this is a cool guy, or this is a cool girl. You must meet this person. They're going to, you know, this will help you do this or that. And really, he was just trying to push me to do some things that I wasn't really comfortable with. Um, and really, one of those was to have my own art show, a photo show, which I did last April. Um, it was really fun and hard and successful, and that was cool. It was very successful. It was really good. Um, and about six months, I mean, we traveled together, we did a bunch of stuff together, but about six months into our friendship, um, he started doing these weird things, which is like he kept wearing um, this um, Live a Great Story t-shirt when he wasn't wearing his burrito t-shirt, which was his other favorite thing, and he kept sticking these Live a Great Story stickers everywhere and taking selfies with them, and finally one day I was like, dude, what are you doing? Or is this something you've, like, started? Like, are you selling the t-shirts and what's the deal and he said this is a brand initiative I don't even know what that was really but it's a brand initiative by a guy named Zach Horvath and and it's partly about t-shirts and partly about stickers but really it's about making every day so that you live a great story that you live sort of a life it's just like you're saying Jess that you live a life that you are passionate about that you want to live right that you're active in that you're really into right you live this life that you're totally into and he goes that's what I'm doing. And I was like, you have totally drank the Kool-Aid, man. And he goes, that's what I'm, I'm, this is what I'm doing. And I said, okay, that's cool, that's cool. So um, one of the things he loved to do was travel. And he could because of his job, and he also traveled a lot for his job. And so 
he traveled in October of 2017 to Chicago on, really, it was a, it was a straight-up photo shoot. It wasn't for work or really was just to shoot photos. And some people went with him from Memphis and other people he met there from different places. And this was the kind of thing he did all the time, meet up with people in other cities to explore and to shoot photos. And they shot some great photos there. And then on the 16th of October, um, they went up on top of a hotel and had a drink at a rooftop bar. And he, um, and he, ah, I'm going to do it, Josh. <laughs> and he um, said to them, supposedly, he said, I'll be right back. I just want to get one more picture. And he walked around the corner and he fell off the edge of the 23rd floor of the roof of this hotel. Um, so his friends called me. Um, about um, 45 minutes later, hysterical, of course, um, and they did not know how to get in touch with his family because Eric Jansen was great, but he sucked at emergency contact information like completely. <laughs> so I knew some about his family and, um, and worked that out, but the weird thing was is the minute that um, Allie Perkins called, uh, I thought that it was weird. I thought that she'd been mugged or raped or something, and she just called hysterical. I was like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I like went into mom mode. Um, but the minute she called, it was like my vertigo kicked in. And my world turned upside down and, like, shifted on its axis and metaphorically and literally. So um, after the... Um, funeral and the memorial service and his art show which we were super lucky to get to have um, a show of all of his works from Chicago because I don't even know how this happened but I talked this lieutenant into sending me the sim card from his camera which actually survived in case you need to know this information um, and they sent it to me and um, Allie Perkins edited the photos and we had this really super cool art show which was great but after all that was over there was this big you know, still, it's just tilt, you know, my life. Um, so I decided I need to make some changes, as you do. Um, so one of the things that um, that I did was I continued Graffiti Memphis, and um, I have, and it used to be like the case was like once a week he'd be like, you know, come on, can you post something? You know, I'm doing all this stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. And then, but I do it every day now, and it's, really great. It's kind of like this nice little meditation where I take five minutes out of my day to do this, with the possible exception of like the one time when I was on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean and my friend Allie had to help me out. But really, I do it almost every, I do it every day. Um, and also, um, he, I, um, in, let's see, th around Thanksgiving, I sent this manuscript of a novel that I had been working on for three years in airplanes. Um, I have three kids, and um, so I would always ride on airplanes, and I sent it to this little tiny publishing company in Oxford, um, England, called Fairlight Books, and they called me four days before Christmas, and they said, we want to publish your book. Um, like, a lifelong dream. So that's going to come out in, on July 11th of 2018 in the UK, but also in Memphis, because <laughs> oh, I was just insistent that it, you know, comes out here too. So you can get it. If you want to read it, it's called There Are Things I Know. But, um, and then um, the other thing is, is I've become a Live a Great Story ambassador. And um, 
kind of reluctantly, but in his honor. Um, because still, he still lives in my head, and he still lives, his spirit's still here, and he's still kicking me in the shins to get out and to meet people and to make a difference and to really be, you know, do what I believe in. And some, I mean, that is my children and paint Memphis and Memphis reads and have a lot of interest, but, um, he really, he really does, um, live there and, um, live a great story really is, um, if you want to check it out, they do have t-shirts, um, but they also have coffee mugs. No, I'm just kidding. They also, um, they have, they really have this group, and it's a community, and anybody in this room who wanted to be could be an ambassador, but they have a community of people who support each other, and they work really hard in order to try to help other people and themselves to live a great story. So um, to that end, um, we're not supposed to have props here, um, but I uh, um, have a live a great story sticker for each of you, and which, is, which are going to be on this table. It's not really a prop, Josh. And you can come and grab one of those, and you can give it to somebody who you think needs it, or you can put it on your car or on your phone, or my kid put it on his lunchbox if you have one, um, um, or a mirror, or just sort of anything that you have maybe in your life, wherever it is, so that you can see it every day and you can remember to live a great story. Spill It Podcast is a joint production between Spill It Memphis and the OAM Network. For more information, go to spillitmemphis.org and the OAMnetwork.com.